We're in Hebrews 11 today. So we've been in a series in the book of Hebrews. We've got just a few more weeks left of this, but Hebrews 11, uh, if you've ever spent any amount of time in this particular book, you're probably familiar with it. Uh, it is a wonderful chapter. You may be going preacher or pastor or maybe you call me Brian. I don't know. But like, how are you going to cover a whole chapter? Well, you'll see. All right. Uh, as you're turning there, um, I remember like it was yesterday going to the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was the summer of 1999, and I remember that so vividly because my all-time favorite player was being inducted into the Hall of Fame that year. Oh, <laughs> wrong sport, George Bratz. Uh, I was working at a Christian camp up in New York, New York Specul Speculator New York, and we were able to kind of bypass and see the Baseball Hall of Fame, and it was so amazing to me. It just so happened to be the year that my favorite player. So George Bratz uh, reached the pinnacle of baseball with this induction. It's the highest level of honor, right? Every player, they get a plaque with a small description of them. Um, it, if you're anything like me, it's a pretty neat experience. You walk through a hallway, a sea of talented players, uh, and they're proven to be so by the stats that are listed right under their picture, by their life in baseball that is on display that these surely are quality, good players. Um, so here's an example. Here's uh, George Brett's plaque. Here's what it said. He played each game with ceaseless intensity, an unbridled passion, to say the least, if you know him. 13-time All-Star, three batting titles, hit 390 in 1980, then he won the MVP that year. But here's the last statement. This is good. A clutch hitter whose profound respect for the game led to universal reverence. Oh, he's well known in the baseball world, and the respect and love for the game led to a lot of respect. It's amazing, though, as you walk through all of these plaques, the evidence is made for each player's greatness, just below their picture. Each player's commendation, if you will, is on display. Their life in baseball is captured in this little paragraph. And as you walk through this and you look at that, it becomes undeniable of their right to be named as some of the baseball greatest. It's kind of hard to argue when you read these uh, plats of what each player did. It's hard to uh, question whether they loved baseball or not. It is so plain by their life in baseball. Profound respect for the game that led to universal reverence. There's a lot of components to each of these gifted players. Universal reverence. A red-headed young kid in Tennessee decided to wear number five in everything that I did because of how he went about the game. And he's not the only one. Plaque after plaque after plaque. And we all would agree, and as you read all of them, that there's so many components to all of these gifted players. But let's be honest. Though it's the pinnacle of baseball, it's baseball. Today, we get a chance to marvel. 
in a, in a way bigger, more profound way than just some amazing stats, I'll admit, amazing stats, than ability to play a game. Today, we're going to be put into the hall of faith, if you will. And as we walk down this hall, there's going to be men and women who loved God. They loved God by showing us their faith, their life of faith. And let's be honest, it's not always roses. <laughs> let's start by reading the first section of chapter 11, 1 to 3. Chapter 11, verse 1 to 3 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2, For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Before we walk down this hall of faith, it kind of seems to make sense. The preacher of Hebrews says it's kind of important for us to understand what faith is at its most root level. You walk through the baseball hall of fame, if you have no clue what baseball is, you're not amazed by what they were able to accomplish. So it sort of makes sense to say, hey, at, at its root level, let's understand faith. And today what we're going to find through this large chapter, we're going to learn there's several components to faith. I challenge you, scour the scriptures of faith, which we're doing in our Sunday studies, and we're going to realize there's so many components to faith. And here's the thing that for us churchgoers, us Christians, us who've been living for the Lord for so long. Faith is a word that we use so often, but, but rarely do we appreciate what it fully means. And not only what it fully means, but how it shapes us. You see, here in these first three verses, we get three really key components, if you will, of faith. We get belief. Faith seems to have some beliefs. But we also get there's trust involved. Belief moves to a trust. And then we hear in these first three verses of how faith brings or proves where a person stands with God. The word here is the commendation. Well, let's look at each of these in order. The first is assurance of things hoped for. This is saying that there are beliefs in a person's life that are more than just beliefs that they are actually certainties. They're, they're not a hope that we think things will happen. No, it is a hope that is certain that God will do what he said he would do. It seems that hope is not resting on a haphazard sort of kind of belief, but it's resting on a certainty. You hear that in that word? And an assurance that God is and will do what he promised. The word assurance, if you look it up underneath it, actually means to become realized. I actually find that helpful. I like the word assurance, and it really does help me, but 
There's something about faith that takes the beliefs that we have, because there's an understanding about God, that it moves into a realization to us. You see, this beliefs in God become a realization. It's not hypothetical to us. It's reality. It's real. It's the truth of the matter. And and what's crazy about these realities, this assurance, that it generates hope. Why? Because we trust the Lord above all things. Here's what I'm trying to say. Hope is not a dream of something happening. It's assured it will happen. It's that old saying that you pray for rain and you grab your umbrella as you walk out the house. An assurance. I'm not saying you need to pray for rain if the Lord doesn't bring rain, but you get my point. Faith, and what we're going to see, is an assurance. Yes, it is beliefs, and we got to understand that's a component of faith, but these beliefs start to take root in us that they become so real to where hope isn't a dream. We're actually assured. Well, the second unpacking of faith, similar to the first, is this phrase, conviction of things not seen. You see, conviction means that something has become the core of who you are. It might be a way that you describe things that are most important to you. This is a conviction that I have. So here, faith is being put before us, and we're going to see lots of examples, uh, that things not seen, it just simply means it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) That's all it means. It just simply hasn't happened yet, but we are convinced that it will indeed happen. You see, faith seems to have future eyes that's not clouded by today's uncertainty. Did you hear that? Because I really want you to grab that. Faith has future eyes that is not clouded by today's uncertainties. Things not seen just means it just hasn't happened yet because the Lord is faithful. You see, heaven is a surety for us. We're convinced that Jesus has prepared a place for us. You see, when the gospels say this, we don't just say, wow, that's kind of neat. No, we believe that it is such a surety that Jesus indeed has went and prepared a place for us. It's not a hypothetical. It is a conviction. And when we have conviction, I think we all could agree, it affects the way we live. See the rest of the chapter. But notice here the other point about faith. It says that faith was their commendation. I know you use that word every day in all your uh, conversations. I don't. I had to look it up. And don't you love technology where I can just hover my mouse clicker over the word, and it gives me the definition. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that faith, and what's faith? Faith is the assurance of our, uh, of our hope. Faith is the conviction of what is to come. Faith is a surety in God. Faith is convinced that God is and will always be. So faith as their commendation, it means this, that it proved that those of old followed God. Do you want to know what they believed? Look 
at their life. Do you want to know where their allegiance lied? See the rest of the chapter. Faith in some way had a way of accommodating them, right? Had a way of putting them forward as, oh yeah, they had faith. An approval, if you will. Putting on display, oh, it's no doubt that they indeed loved Jesus. You walk through the Baseball Hall of Fame and it becomes no doubt that these men accomplished some great things. When faith is on display, it becomes no doubt that in the person by which the faith is displayed loves God. Just like all that text behind, underneath those plats of baseball, faith proved where these individuals stood. It showed what they were assured of. Their beliefs were realized in the way that they lived. How do we know what someone believes? How do we know that a belief has been realized? It affects the way that we live. It seems here in this text that faith is talked about in such a way that, it, that this type of display, this type of belief and surety and conviction and life that we live is well-pleasing unto the Lord. When we exercise this type of faith, the Lord is greatly pleased by it. See, this is what verse 6 seems to allude to. I know we haven't read it yet, but let me just draw your attention to unpack a little bit of these first three verses. Here's what verse 6 says. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And then we get clarity here. For whoever would draw near to God must believe. Belief is a component of faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This seems to mean that when faith is exhibited in our lives, that means that there is such a deep trust in God, because why else would you do it? Why else would you live that way? Why else would these people do what they did? It exhibits a deep trust in God, and when trust is given to God, it's pleasing to Him. So a component of faith is, puts on display our affections, and the Lord is well pleased when we do that. Notice, though, that faith is teased out a little bit more in verse 3, also in verse 6 as well. What do we learn? Well, we can't deny the fact that faith is indeed beliefs. It's an, an understanding that we have, but it gets so plain here. What's the understanding? It's an understanding about God that we trust and that we are convinced is true. It, it is such an understanding that, that we believe it's so true that it actually changes the way that you and I live our lives. See the rest of the chapter. What does it look like to be assured of things hoped for? What does it look like to have conviction of things not seen? See Hebrews 11. It seems here in this chapter that there is a strong belief, if we were to just really tease out a couple things that are put before us, there's a strong belief that God exists. There's a strong understanding about my life that is a reality to me is that God does indeed exist. That seems to be, when we see in verse 6 in particular, that God does indeed exist. But there's another little component that he's trying to tease out, the preacher's being incredibly direct and specific, but it's also that God establishes relationship with those who seek him. That God is not aloof, but those who seek him, God is happy to respond. 
And that is a realization that you and I have. To some degree, just simply coming and getting up and going through the whole motion of putting your clothes on, cleaning yourself up, wrangling your kids if you had to do that. There's something underneath that that we believe that if we go and the Lord is faithful, he exists. And so since he exists, he'll establish relationship with us and he'll grow us. You see, it affects the way that we do life. See, creation, highlighted in verse 3, it oozes that God exists. It makes plain that he does indeed exist. The lives of these individuals oozes that he establishes relationship. <clears throat> Lauren, will you give me some water? I'm just so emotional. <coughs> the life of these individuals oozes <clears throat> that they have relationship. This is going to be really hard, isn't it? <clears throat> faster, faster. I'm just kidding. <coughs> I've got like a bunch of Sudafed in me, and so it's like, you know. Ah, that's refreshing. Whew, just, you just watch me for a while. This is good. <coughs> Creation oozes that God exists. That's, that's a key component that the, the preacher is bringing out, right? That God does indeed exist. We all believe, or at least we should, that God does indeed exist. What's fascinating about the lives that are exposed here, they also put before us and they ooze with their life that God does and he must establish relationship with those who seek him because why would they do what they did? If indeed God was not in relationship with them. Well, we could spend hours, Logan and I were joking this week that we could take, I don't know, four months on chapter 11. And here we're going to try to do it one time together. But these first three verses give us a backdrop. The preacher begins to show faith. With this backdrop, he now moves to show faith. You want to know what it's like to have assurance? See these lives. You, you want to know what it's like to, to be convicted of the things not seen? You know what it's like to be convinced that God exists and God is our God and he will do what he said? See the lives. Here is the great hall of faith. It's great to unpack all of those words, but if you're anything like me, an example is really good. You can explain things to me all you want. You go to a whiteboard and start writing like, I'm in. It's good for examples. And here we get to walk together, and we're not going to be able to unpack everything. So walk this afternoon through the hall of faith and be deeply encouraged. I want you to imagine as we dive into this next section, okay, assurance, conviction, what does that look like? We're about to look at it. Imagine plaque after plaque, right, on the walls. And underneath each individual reads a life of faith. But I want you to understand something. The words below it are realistic, <laughs> And the words tell the whole story of that person's life. And the words, unfortunately, often tell of great suffering as the greatest display of faith. Now, there is a lot of text here to read. But I think it may be helpful to just kind of show you how it's structured. And I think the reason I want to do that is so that maybe this afternoon you'll enjoy this chapter again. That would be my desire. 
You see, from this point forward, we get a reoccurring phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, right? I told you what faith is, now let me just show it to you. So we get this reoccurring phrase, by faith, by faith. So-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did this. So let's just read 4 to 7 as an example, okay? Verse 4 all the way to 7. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. There it is. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, we looked at this a minute ago. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah. No kidding, right? Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Oh, interesting. Unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commended the world and became an heir of the righteous that comes by faith. Over and over and over, by faith, by faith, by faith. Someone does something, God sees it, they're commended by it, and the Lord is well pleased. Here in verses 4 to 40, we get faith, faith, and more faith. (laughs) This pattern continues throughout the entire chapter, but there are a couple of breaks. And we're going to see in a moment that those breaks will prove crucial. Because you and I, if we were to construct a hall of faith, we could choose a number of people. But there seems to be a reason why the preacher is doing what he's doing. And these breaks will prove really crucial to help us understand. But you and I, it's easy for us to see here that faith is more than just a set of beliefs that we trust completely. You see, here is another component of faith, action. There's something about faith, there's something about this assurance and conviction that moves to the way we live our life. That we become so sure, that we are beyond doubt that God is real. And what he says is true, so that our life begins to reflect that conviction. Our life gives evidence of faith. You don't believe me? See verses 4 to 40. Let me just break it down for you. Abel offers a better sacrifice than Cain. Why does he do that? Because God told him to. And he believed God. And he did it. Enoch gets to skip death because of what? Faith. He believed God existed. He believed God established relationship. So he skips death. Noah builds an ark. Now, we didn't read it, but then Abraham comes into the picture in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. How did he obey? He went to a land that he did not know. It wasn't as if these men and women, that faith was just hunky-dory, super easy. But here, he obeys and goes to a land he did not know. Sarah conceived when she was old and wasn't supposed to conceive. But she trusted God because he said she would. And see, here is just the first group 
because there is so much more. But here comes that first little break. Before we get to the second group of people who live by faith, the preacher interrupts his history lesson of faith. He interrupts it with an observation. Let's read this. Verse 13, he just stops cold after he's been talking about all these faith people. Verse 13, these all died in faith. All right. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers exiled on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Well, this is, this is interesting, isn't it? Here are all these rock stars of faith. And here, the preacher turns the corner and says, oh yeah, they all died in faith. All right. They all die without fully realizing all of God's promises. but it doesn't matter. You see, faith functions a little bit differently. Here, he says it doesn't matter because faith had told them that there was way more than just today. Faith had told them that there is more that meets the eye on a daily basis. So as they approached death, their eyes were forward, and they looked down the road believing and trusting that God would indeed be faithful. You see, dying and not having the full realization does not mean anything. Because for them, the reality is that their home, our home, is with God. Listen to verse 16 again. But as it is, they desire a better country. How? Faith compelled them to believe that God indeed was going to do what he said. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here in, in verses 13 to 16, we see all the components of faith, right? Belief, what, in a better country? Trust that this belief was absolutely certain. Whether I see it or not in my death, that doesn't matter. He is going to do it. I don't have to see it. He will do what he said he would do. We see this trust. We see this certainty, this assurance. And then we see actions based upon those convictions. And then we see... God being well pleased with it all. Well, this little break moves on to group two of faithful ones. Pits back up in verse 17. Let me help you in a, a summary fashion, okay? We get back into Abraham. But this time, Abraham is mentioned again. His trust in God is displayed. Not only is he obeyed and went to the land that he did not know, but here Abraham exhibits faith, trust, and obedience to offer Isaac. That really odd story, right? That's so bizarre. But here Abraham gets mentioned, put before us as a um, wonderful follower of God to have faith on display, and it is in his obedience to offer Isaac. Faith doesn't always seem to be super easy. 
But do you notice in, in what he mentions about Abraham here, he mentions the belief that he had. Here's the belief that Abraham had. This is crazy. That God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. He had no context for that or believed that, that, that never seen that before. But he, in this text, the preacher puts before us, hey, you remember Abraham? He was willing to offer Isaac. You know why? Because he just believed that God would raise him from the dead. Why did he develop that belief? Because it becomes, it comes from the reality that God does not lie. Why? Well, God said that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham believed it. He, he had no clue what is happening, but he believed so much that what God had told him that God would do that he's such a surety that he actually believes that, well, Isaac cannot remain dead because God told me. Because that would make God not true. So the action of a willingness to go offer Isaac, which seems unthinkable, is grounded in a surety that God has promised. So therefore, I don't know what he's going to do, but Isaac will not remain dead. The action comes from a belief that is real to him. Where it's unthinkable for us to do that. You see, in his mind, he trusts God. Then Isaac gets mentioned. But he gets mentioned for his faith of blessing his sons. Doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Why is this a big deal? Well, this is a big deal because this is a show of belief that God is going to fulfill his promises to save his people though it has not happened yet fully. Isaac is convinced God will do it. See, Isaac is putting before us in blessing his son assurance of things hoped for. So much so, he's like, hey, you, you got to get ready because the Lord's doing this. So I'm going to bless you because he, he will do this. So I need to get you ready for that. Isaac has a conviction of things not yet Seeing an incredible example. And we just thought it was a silly blessing. No, it's an act of faith. Because he says, God's going to do this, guys. Like, get prepared. Then Jacob gets the same mention of faith by blessing his son. But specifically, Joseph's sons. Now, we spent a lot of time in Genesis. I encourage you to go back and look at that. But we realize Joseph plays a pretty crucial role in God's people. He serves such a significant role in God's people being saved that just the mention of him, they go, oh, yeah, Joseph, yeah, that's, that's it. We avoided famine. He did incredible things. But here's what's interesting about Joseph. Uh, there is almost all of his life could be mentioned as faith. But here the preacher emphasizes the instructions of what to do with his bones. <laughs> okay. See, here is another faith move. What is happening? See, Joseph is convinced that God's promises will be fulfilled. So he says, hey, it may be 10 years, it may be 20, it may be 100, but hey, get my bones ready because when God does it, take me with you. It's a show of a tremendous faith of an assurance that God will do what he said. A conviction of things not yet seen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but take my bones because it's going to happen. So this is a move in, in God's people that he believed that God would keep his covenant promises. Take my bones back to our land because that is our realization. It's not a dream to us. It is our reality. And then Moses comes along. 
Then he mentions Moses, and Moses gets actually most of the attention. I would suspect that most of us are familiar with the story and, and hopefully remember the many moves of faith in his life. But I think it's wise for us to just read it, all right? Verses 23 to 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, was shown by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. More convinced of what God has said than what the king has said. 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That read under your plaque, right? <laughs> Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. From the moment he is born, faith is on display. From his parents to the servants, remember the story, and then to Moses himself. And now there is a lot here for us to enjoy. There is a lot in the life of Moses that puts on display assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. But what I find most interesting is verse 26. It actually says that Moses considered. How did he make this faith? How did he choose to be just terribly mistreated? Verse 26 says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, he had a lot of treasures in Egypt. He was Pharaoh's daughter, right, or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says where he was looking to the reward. Christ? <laughs> really? Really, Christ? It seems that the preacher believed that he could easily put in Christ's name because that was ultimately where all the promises of God for their salvation was fulfilled, will be fulfilled in full consummation. Sure, Moses doesn't know his name, but Moses chose reproach for what God had said he was going to do. He chose what God was going to say as the bigger, better reality than the monetary riches. And I don't think we can fathom how many riches were at his disposal. Christ future Savior was more real to Moses, more real to Moses than the current, right in front of him, riches. You see, that's faith. You see, that's assurance of what he hoped for. That was conviction of things not seen. You know what he saw? Suffering in front of him. But reproach for what God has said in bringing a Savior was more real to him. And, and there's so much more. The people who crossed the Red Sea, those who obeyed and watched the wall fall in Jericho, the unlikely display of faith in Rahab we looked at a few weeks ago. Then in this real powerful moment, the preacher preaches. Oh, man, he's so good. He just preaches very eloquently. And then he presents, he's almost given all this evidence, more details, and then he just heaps on a bunch of evidence of faith found in the history of God's people. 
Listen to verses 32 to 38. And what more shall I? He's a good preacher, right? Like, this is awesome. Hey, I've laid a pretty big, but what more? I can just see him now. What more shall I say? And you know what? I'll just go ahead and say a bunch more. <laughs> For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barat, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And then he just goes on to proceed to tell you about them. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, attained, uh, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Wow. That's faith. There's so much to enjoy in the way he kind of lands the plane at the end. What more shall I say? So let me just say a bunch more. It just begins to unload the history of God's people who live by faith. And come to find out, living by faith is not always easy. But then, the preacher ends the chapter in a surprising way. Verses 39 to 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, see the bookends? Got first couple of verses, now we got, they're commended through their faith. But here's the kicker, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I say surprising break, but it's exactly the break we saw in 13 to 16. See the structure of the text? Hey, here's faith. Examples, here's what I want you to see. Examples, oh, did you miss it? Here's what I want you to see. He wants us to understand that all these died in faith but the promise, because the promises were not fully realized. But it did not matter because what? This world is not it. There's more. There's way more and it's better. It seems that the preacher is trying to get them to see that no dark day stops God's faithfulness to those who draw near to him. See, the emphasis on dying without receiving the promise, it simply just means that they did not see fully what would come. But that wasn't their focus. You see, faith has future eyes. And faith is not clouded by today's uncertainty. Faith is not clouded by their current circumstance. So he's looking them dead in the eye and saying, don't you dare walk away. It's been the habit of God's people to live this way. Future, ha our faith has future eyes. Do not be clouded by today's uncertainty. 
You see, faith is already sure. It is convinced. Our reality is more than just today. We are almost home. We believe and we trust that there is a full consummation of Christ who has won the victory. Faith has always functioned this way. If I could summarize, I don't think I can do any better, but I'll try. Faith is sure beliefs that are more real than our current circumstances and that God's are living. You see, that's hope. It's a realization that God is real, that God exists. And since God exists, nothing can overtake him. Since God exists, he does, not in, he does indeed establish relationship. He exists. So, of course, he'll establish relationship with those who seek him. You see, these faith walkers, they didn't die in vain. That's not what he's saying. They died in faith, full of hope, full of certainty, because faith had future eyes full of complete belief surety that there's a better home awaiting them. It compelled them to live in ways that are unthinkable. There's many components to faith that we've seen this morning, right? Beliefs, trust, action, it's our commendation. It proves that God is way more precious to us than anything else. And so I think it's wise for me this morning to say, where is your faith today? When uncertainty looms, what are you certain of? When circumstances are so shattered, what are you sure of? What will sustain you in uncertainty? Well, whatever you're sure of. <laughs> Wherever your assurance is, whatever your convictions tell you, where is your faith today? When life is uncertain, what are you certain of? Where's your trust? Is faith just a dream of a possible future with God? Or is your faith assured? Is your faith convinced that God indeed has fulfilled, is fulfilling, and will fulfill all his promises in Christ? Does faith drive your daily living? Do you consider the things of Christ more real than today? You see, they, we're learning, we are in need of great endurance. How do we endure? By being assured of what we hope for and convicted of things not seen. That the things of God are more real to us. If you're visiting with us and you wonder what it's like to have that faith in Christ, grab somebody. He's worth it. This is the things he does in our life. Brothers and sisters, if you've been walking for Christ for a while, it is wise for you to take a, a, a little a look over your life. When life is uncertain, what are you certain of? Let's pray. Father God, this morning we've covered a lot of ground. I pray that as we've looked at things in kind of a summary fashion that you've used it 
to uh, encourage us, used it to challenge us, used it to um, call us to deeper levels of faith. Father, in these few moments together, I pray that that spirit you've worked, because we as a church are in desperate need of endurance. We will this year need to endure and remain faithful to you. It all starts by asking ourselves, what are we sure of? What are we certain of? When life is uncertain, what are we certain of? So help us, Father. Encourage us today. If some among us don't know you, we ask that you would work, that you would grant them faith, call them to repentance, and they come to know you and be encouraged. We're thankful for all that we have in Christ. We ask you would walk with us this week. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.